John chapter 1. We are currently in a series in the Gospel of John, according to John, the fourth gospel inside our New Testament. Some of you are aware there are other gospels that did not make it in the New Testament. We have false gospels, we have Gnostic gospels. These are the gospels that the church early on recognized the Holy Spirit had inspired Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is unique, very different. The selection of the four Gospels and the way we approach them, even in preaching, is all rooted in our view of Scripture. A lot of people don't really explicitly connect a church's view of Scripture with how they approach preaching or a denomination. But if you look historically at churches and or denominations that have moved away from a high view of Scripture, they've also moved away from biblical preaching because the two are inextricably linked. And so that is why the Reformation, you saw the pulpit come back to the center and make preaching a central point. And so we believe in the Scriptures as the inspired Word of God, infallible, inerrant. And so we spend time in the life of our church trying to make sure we are infusing Scripture into everything and why in a worship service our songs are based on it and we spend a good deal of time preaching out of it. And so what we're doing in this series is we're looking at this gospel. We're going to take most of this calendar year to do it, section by section, sometimes paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse. But the goal is to understand what John is saying. John is unique in presenting Jesus as the unique only Son of God. The other gospels emphasize different things about Christ, but John wants to make sure you understand this is the only Savior. The Savior who says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is the true Jesus. This weekend we're focusing on chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, a section that reminds us that the essence of the biblical gospel is Jesus. And, by extrapolation, the essence of biblical evangelism is the person of Jesus. That is the the heart of evangelism. Not so much sharing my testimony. My testimony can have a role in evangelism, but too often in American evangelicalism, my testimony becomes like the focus point of evangelism, and that's not the case biblically. Biblically, as we're going to see today, evangelism primarily is presenting the person and the work of Christ and then urging people to follow him. And so that is what we're going to talk about today as we dive in. Chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, and we see John focusing on two things. First, clarifying the gospel. Secondly, sharing the gospel. And these two are intermingled all the way through this text. That's why I did not put verse divisions behind the two main points today, because from beginning to end in this text, these are swirled together all the way through. The gospel they were sharing is clarified over and over again. And so we need to see both of these. So we're going to begin with clarifying the gospel. And that begins right at verse 35. Let me take a step back before I say that. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.4 issues a warning. Some of you know the warning. But the warning is about the danger of following a counterfeit Jesus. And so Paul says, beware, there is another spirit. There is another gospel and there is another Jesus. Meaning, it is possible to follow a false Jesus. Just because someone comes to your door or writes a book 
and says they're talking about Jesus does not mean it's the Jesus of the Bible. That's why you have to clarify and make sure it's the real Jesus. The false Jesus, counterfeit Jesus, cannot rescue from sin, cannot give joy in life. And there's been lots of these advocated over the years throughout church history. The Jesus who is only a good moral man. The Jesus who is only a human prophet. The Jesus who came as a moral leader or a political revolutionary. Or the Jesus who came, one of the most common lately, is a Jesus who is an LGBTQ crusader. And all these false Jesuses claim for people's affections. And they vie for people's allegiance. And the Bible tells us to make sure that the Jesus you're committed to is the Jesus of the Bible. And John now is going to clarify exactly who that Jesus is. Friends, young people, there is no excuse to get done with this section and not know what John says. Not know who the real Jesus is. You may say, I don't want anything to do with the real Jesus. That's your call. But John wants you to know who he is and who he is not. And this is one of the most clarifying sections to that end. So, five titles that Jesus gives, or John gives about Jesus. Jesus claims some of these throughout the gospel. And we're just going to take them one at a time as they come. First of all, Jesus is the Lamb of God. That is the first one presented. We saw this one last week. This was on the lips of John the Baptist, the first mass evangelist in the New Testament. Verse 29, if you just back up just a bit, is the first time this title appears. We noted last week this is not a common title of Jesus. It's not common in the Gospels. In fact, it doesn't even show up in the other three synoptic Gospels. It's unique to John. It only comes twice in his book. It's used once by the Apostle Paul when he calls Jesus the Passover lamb. Mostly it's used in the book of Revelation, but it's not the lamb of God. He's the victorious lamb, the warrior lamb. But here twice in John's opening chapter, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. So verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this emphasis on the Lamb being the atoning sacrifice. And then in verse 35, in verse 36, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. We said this was probably borrowed from passages like Isaiah 53, which associates the death of a lamb with removing guilt. Isaiah 53, like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. Or verse 10 in Isaiah 53, the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. And last week we noted that the phrase guilt offering in the original Hebrew is a Hebrew word that's used in Leviticus 5 several times to describe a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice without defect. So it doesn't take much to connect the dots from Leviticus 5, Isaiah 53, to what John is saying here about Jesus. What this tells us is when, when John the Baptist says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away sin, it's a reminder that we're sinners. It's a reminder that from womb to tomb, so to speak, we are sinners who sin against God and break his law. Every day we break his law. You have broken God's law many times this week. So have I. Every day we violate his commands. Every day we choose self over God. Even on a Sunday morning, even on a new Sabbath. It's amazing how much we can sin. Even, even when we're sitting in a worship service. Even when we're singing and listening to preaching. Our minds can go to vile things. And so we are shot through with sin and one of the unique things of the Christian worldview 
is what an exalted view of man it has and also what a depraved view it has. Both are held in tension. You have this coming out of Genesis where we are alone created in the image of God. Instead of no other animal, creature, or angel, human beings alone are in the image of God. No animal. That's why you can eat animals if you want. Not everyone wants to eat animals, but I have a t-shirt, PETA, people eating tasty animals. Somebody gave it to me. On the back, if you know the t-shirt, it says there is a, I, there's a place in all of God's creation for his animals right next to my mashed potatoes and gravy. So whether you are a uh, meat eater or not, there's a, the, the reason we are even allowed to eat meat is because of this biblical worldview that we are in the image of God, animals are not, nor are angels. And so there's that high view of man, but then there's this flawed, marred view of man that we're shot through with sin. That comes in Genesis 3. And then the scriptures give testimony upon testimony, painfully accurate testimony, of our flawed, sinful, rebellious condition. Again, from womb to tomb. We are sinners by nature, sinners by birth, sinners by choice. You may not have grown up in a tradition that even said that or heard that, but that's the testimony. Let me just read you three verses in particular that drive this home with painful clarity. For example, you're not even out of the first ten chapters of Genesis, Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That describes you and I. That's why we need a Savior. That's why Jesus is the Lamb of God. Or Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Now notice where the thoughts come from. From internally, outward. Too many see evil as something outside that invades us. That is not a biblical worldview. It's out there, obviously. But the biblical worldview is evil primarily comes from within. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. Or Romans 3.12, all have sinned and fall away from God or turn away from God. No one does good, not even one. The problem with our modern Western culture, this goes true even for some traditional cultures, we have no categories for evil inside a human being. Evil is done to people, that's true. But the concept of evil primarily generated from within, we don't have categories for. So, for example, Agent Starling asked Dr. Hannibal Lecter a very cultural question, but unbiblical, which is, well, what happened to you? Obviously, you're a wicked human. What happened to you? Surprisingly, he offers a very biblical response. Nothing happened to me. Look at me, he says, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say, I am evil? And that is the biblical response. And that is why we need a Savior. And that is why Jesus is the Lamb of God. And that's why John exalts him as such, to take away our sin. Second title that comes up, Jesus is the Messiah. Verses 40 and 41. These just come one right after the other. Scholars call this section very rich in Christological titles, titles of Christ. And it is. It's one of the richest sections just in density in the New Testament. So verses 40, 41. 
Then, uh, or Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, and we'll come back to that whole interchange in a few minutes, we have found the Messiah. Hebrew word. That is the Christ, Greek translation of it. And he brought him to Jesus. And he brought him to Jesus. So Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed one. And the Greek equivalent is the word Christ. So we have noted Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is Jesus the Christ, Jesus Messiah. Jesus Messiah. Now, some of you know the problem is the Jews. Most of the Jews did expect a Messiah. That's not a, a surprise. There were all sorts of messianic expectations. They longed for a Messiah. They wanted a Messiah. They knew the scriptures predicted a Messiah. But the Messiah predicted wasn't widely understood accurately. In fact, hardly at all. And his, his followers did not understand that suffering had to come first, that a cross, a cross had to come before a crown. And John is telling us that Jesus is a long-awaited Messiah, but a very different Messiah than they had imagined. And this comes up, there's this motif over and over in the Gospels, that Jesus is a king, Jesus is a Messiah, but a very different king and a very different Messiah than his followers, than the people had imagined. Third title, Jesus is the Son of God, verse 49. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. In fact, our next two titles are in one verse. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. The Bible teaches that God has only one begotten Son, Greek word, monogenes, used four times in John. And here it's used, it's also used in 1.18, it's used in John 3.16, it's a one of it, and it's not so much referring to biological birth, Ken, but it carries a deeper meaning in the New Testament of one of a kind, unique, beloved. And for example, in Hebrews eleven seventeen, Isaac is called Abraham's monogenes, his only begotten son. Well, Isaac wasn't Abraham's only biological son, but it's a title. That's the, that's the point. It, it's an honor. It's, it's, a, it's a position of status and rank, kind of like the Greek word firstborn in Colossians 1.15 when it says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. We did a series on Colossians a couple years ago, and we talked about that. And some cults try to argue from that. Well, see, Jesus was created. He had a beginning. He's a firstborn. You ha if you have a firstborn, you know it's the first one born. But that's not the way the title is used in that culture. It was used to describe supremacy, the, pre the predominant one, the supreme one, and somewhat same with the title monogenes. Next title right there following it on its heels, Jesus is the king of Israel, verse 49. So again, Daniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus accepted that title at times. The problem, again, is the king that they wanted is not the kind of king he was. Once again, he's a very different kind of king than they expected. Jesus is a king who didn't come to lead his followers into war. He came to die for sinners. That was on nobody's radar screen. He was a king who took compassion, for example, on the sexually immoral, on the oppressed, on outcasts on the marginalized, on the poor, 
the forgotten, the, the people that most didn't want to talk about, think about. He was a king who embraced lepers. He was a king who embraced slaves. He's a king who embraced the homeless, the helpless, the oppressed, and the demonized. And a king who showed us how to serve others. Give up power. What kind of a king shows his followers and tells them to give up power? And a king who came and said, you need to forgive your enemies. And showed by example. And once again, the people realized, this is not the kind of king, Messiah, they wanted. And so they turned on him. And it's a reminder, friends, of this. Young people, hear this. Jesus is not anything we want him to be. We live in a day where my truth rules. My truth. I heard the president of Harvard University recently give a testimony about her truth. And that's the, that's the phrase of the day. My truth. Well, the Bible says they're not your truth, his truth, their truth, her truth. There's truth. Veritas. Original model of Harvard. Veritas. Truth. And Jesus says, I am the truth. And so we can't make him into anything he wants or anything we want. He says, if you're going to follow me, He's very clear in the scriptures. If you're going to follow me, he says, you have to come on my terms. You have to follow my agenda and my requirements. And he says, you can't follow me any which way you want and still find eternal life. Hence, back to Paul's warning in 2 Corinthians 11, be careful. There is another Jesus. There is another spirit and there is another gospel. Counterfeits are out there vying for your allegiance and they are spiritually deadly and will lead to destruction. The last title that shows up in this section is Jesus as the Son of Man, verses 50 and 51. So these titles just come at us, bam, bam, bam. And here in the last two verses, Jesus as the Son of Man. Jesus said, verse 50, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. He's talking to Nathaniel. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God descending and descending on the Son of Man. A couple weeks ago, we addressed this question. Who is this Son of Man? Well, Jesus' go-to title. It's his go-to reference for himself. And the question is, well, what is this all about? And the answer, very quickly, we learned was, it comes from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel 7, which is an apocalyptic Old Testament book, Daniel speaks of this warrior coming, Messiah warrior at the end of time, who will rule the nations and bring justice and judgment. And Jesus said, that guy, that's me. Now that's an extreme title to claim, unless it's true. But the new people knew who the Son of Man was from Daniel. This was not an uncommon thing. It was not unknown. Jesus said, that divine end of times, apocalyptic warrior who will rule the nations, that is me. And he kept going back to that title over and over again. I want to show you one other spot where it's used. John chapter 5, verses 26 to 29, just to give you an example how often Jesus used this to describe himself. John, just go a couple more chapters. Chapter 5, just another example, verses 26 to 29. It's good to compare Scripture to Scripture. It's an important part of Bible study. John 5, 26 to 29, as the Father has life in himself, verse 26, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge, why? 
What's the text say? Because he is the son of man. Jesus is talking in third person about himself, adopting this title from Daniel 7. Do not be amazed at this. A time is coming. Now think of what Jesus is claiming here about himself. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. Whose voice? Jesus' voice. He's talking about himself. And at his voice, they will come out of their graves. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Five titles right in a row so that we are crystal clear what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus. That is what believers are called to share. Their testimony may come into that equation or it may not. But what's essential that we communicate to our children, to our friends, to our friends at school, to our colleagues, to our neighbors, is the evangel, the gospel. And that is centered in the person and the work of Jesus. Now that brings us back to verse 35. Swirled all through this section then is sharing the gospel. As I was studying this week, I noticed that some who preached on this section only emphasized this part, which is a very strong theme in these verses. But if you miss all the Christological titles, you miss a key part of what they were called to share. That's why John is heaping up the titles, reminding us, yes, we're to go share, but here is the evangel. It is a very specific message. Don't miss it. And that's why I put that one first. Now, sharing the gospel. In the second part of this section today, were introduced to the followers of Jesus and shown that once they committed to Jesus, what'd they do? They immediately found somebody and shared the good news of the gospel. And so in chapter one, as you look at chapter one here, starting verse 35, John is going to highlight five men in particular, John the Baptist, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. So we'll take them that way. By the way, it's interesting that three of these guys, this is kind of a footnote that's worth saying just a little bit about, three of these guys, Philip, Andrew, and Peter, all came from the same village, tiny little village, which is interesting. Let me show you a couple pictures. They come from Bethsaida. You might say, what, what's that? It's, just a, it's a little village just back a bit from the Sea of Galilee. As we go through this, I'll show you different pictures of this area so you get a feel, but it's a reminder this stuff took place in real history, and these places really existed and this was just a little tiny village. The ruins are still there. They've almost done no excavation there today. Last, when we were, last May when we were in Israel, Becky and I actually, of all the places we've been in Israel, we had never been to this particular site. And so I told our tour leader, I said, hey, I want to go uh, to Bethsaida. And he's like, well, there's not much there. And I said, I know, but never been there. I like to try to visit new sites every time we come to Israel. And I want to see it. So we did. We walked through. And, well, there's Dave Schmidt. And M.J. Wallace, right there, as we're heading in. It's a little tiny village. It can't be 20, 30 acres. And as we go through these slides, you'll see exactly what this little village looked like. It was, there's, a, there's the uh, outline of what would have been a, a home, which was pretty small. If you go to the next picture, you'll see the next couple of pictures just show Bethsaida as it is spread out. Again, it's not very large. It's a very tiny city. The next picture, again, will show that. Here's why I emphasize this for just a second. And I think this is an important point. We see this in the Gospels. There were two large Greek cities very near Jesus as he grew up and was starting his ministry. If you've been to Israel, you may know this. Sepphoris was just over the hill 
very well known for its mosaics, beautiful Roman city. And Bethshan, 10, 15 miles away, was a massive Roman city. In fact, today it's the largest archaeological dig in Israel currently going on. These were two huge cities. You know how many of his disciples he chose from Sepphoris or Bethshan? Zero. Zero. He chose his disciples from small little villages for the most part. Small little towns. And it telegraphs a very important signal, and that is this. Here is the common man's Messiah. Here is a Messiah who came for everyday, average, ordinary, moral failures like us. And so that's why I put up pictures to, to remind us. This, this took place in history. You can go walk there today. Again and again in the biblical text, you'll see these places mentioned. You go over there today and there it is. But it's also a reminder, it sends a message. When Jesus chose his followers, he picked really common, ordinary, average people. He is the Messiah for the common man. Now, that brings us to the example, the first example of Personal evangelism, one person sharing with another, and it's a brother sharing with a brother. Look at verse 40 to 42. Verse 40 to 42, we call this, you know, personal evangelism as opposed to, say, mass evangelism. So who's the first mass evangelist in the New Testament? John the Baptist. What's he do? He comes, he preaches to crowds. And there's been many examples of this in church history. You can go back and look at D.L. Moody, or you can look at George Whitfield. You can look at Billy Graham. All through church history, there have been those who have specialized. God's called them to mass evangelism. But the majority of evangelism in the history of the world isn't done that way. It's done one-on-one for the most part. And here is a classic example. And John is clearly showing us a pattern here. So verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of those two who heard what John had said, John the Baptist, and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found Messiah, that is Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. You know what that makes Andrew? The very first evangelist in the New Testament. At least the very first personal evangelist in the New Testament. It's worth noting, John emphasizes that the primary motivation of people coming to Jesus was to be with him. Be with him. Back, for example, look, verses 37 to 39. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. There was, an, there was a huge attraction to just following and being with him. Turning around, verse 38, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied. And you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying. And what did they do? They spent that day with him. There was a huge lure to be with Christ. And that is a sub-theme in John, especially of abiding and being in the presence of Christ. And that was huge attraction to the whole thing. Also notice Peter's name change, verse 42. Down in verse 42, you will notice his name has changed. He was Simon. You will be called Cephas. That's Aramaic, and then translated as Peter, Petros, it just mean, those both mean rock. Why is that significant? Because it speaks to Peter's future. Name changes were not unusual in the Bible. Abram became Abraham, basically little daddy became big daddy. That's really kind of what it means. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel, 
he who struggles with God. And here, Peter gets a name change. And what's interesting, I mean, this is another one of those just subtle, encouraging things. Jesus had some of the harshest things to say to Peter of his disciples. I mean, he was, he was I think we can tell you, he was hard on Peter at times. Very hard on him. Peter, many times, was just kind of an idiot. And so Jesus took this guy and he begins to invest in him. And he clearly loved Peter, but he was hard on Peter. But then it shows, here he gives a name change that speaks to Peter's future like it does to any believer. And what we see in Peter's life as the Gospels unfold is that God took a common man who was ambivalent, vacillating, impulsive, and had an unsubmissive spirit. And he shaped him into a rock-like leader. It's sad how many, as they age, get marginalized by their anger and by their disobedience. And here Peter allows God to shape him, and he becomes the greatest preacher among the apostles, and in every sense, the dominant figure in the first 12 chapters of Acts, where the church was born. A second example of personal evangelism is that of a friend telling a friend, Philip sharing with Nathaniel. So first, mass evangelism, John the Baptist. Then secondly, personal evangelism begins with Andrew, the first evangelist, sharing brother. Now we have Philip sharing with Nathaniel, a friend telling a friend. So John's kind of covering all the bases here. So verse 43, down to verse 49. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Again, this theme of abide. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the little town of Bethsaida. He just saw it. It really, really is there. The ruins are still there. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. Jesus is going to make this claim later on in John. But here they, they, they get this. Moses, their great prophet, they wrote about Jesus. And one whom also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Nazareth was a know-nothing town, not even mentioned in the Old Testament, not even mentioned by Josephus. It was, it was nothing. Come and see, said Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching him, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. This had to freak him out a little bit. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. I want to propose that what you're seeing in these examples are the seeds of why the gospel spread like wildfire across the Mediterranean world. If you look at maps of where churches, the first churches were planted in the first 100 years and then the first 200 years and the first 300 years after Jesus, you will see dots start popping up all over the Mediterranean world. It's a fascinating map to see. How did the word get out, for the most part, one-on-one -on -one evangelism? One-on-one, -on -one, one person telling the next person, how to know Christ. In other words, verbal proclamation of Jesus, the Savior, and then inviting others to follow him. That's how the gospel spread, person to person, verbal proclamation. Now, some of you know of St. Francis of Assisi, and some of you, the 13th century Italian friar and mystic, the Franciscans come from him, and he did some amazing things, but he has a saying 
So it's become well-known. I was given a plaque years and years ago with the saying on it. And once I realized what the saying was, I put the plaque in a drawer because not a real biblical saying. The saying is this, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. Okay, there is an aspect where a godly life, Peter tells us this, does proclaim the gospel. He, he talks about living such a good life among the pagans that they'll glorify God. Okay, so our lives do preach. But the New Testament is also really, 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 really clear that evangelism includes words, lots of them, about Jesus the Messiah and Jesus the Savior. And that we are to evangelize not only with our lives, but also our lips. Otherwise, it's not biblical evangelism. 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you about the hope you have. And if you look at the apostles in the book of Acts, and they went out, what did they do? They preached. They also did some healings and miracles, but they preached, and they preached, and they used lots of words. And if you look at the sermons throughout the Bible, sermons of Moses, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and sermons of Amos, and Jesus, and Paul, and Peter, they're filled with words. Verbal proclamation backed up by good works and acts of service, and sometimes even miracles. The problem historically is that as the church grew and spread and began to take root across the Mediterranean world and then eventually grew and broke into the different factions we have today, Orthodox with the capital O, the Orthodox world, Roman Catholic, Protestant. What happened was, slowly over time, relational evangelism started to fade and took a back seat. And it it became a common assumption, I'm simplifying things here a bit, but it became a common assumption that evangelism was that thing that priests do and clergy and popes and leaders, not the average person. And so what happened was you moved away from an incarnational model of evangelism where it's one-on-one between people and you moved towards an institutional model of evangelism where the goal was to bring people to the house or bring them to the box so that the gospel could be done by the professionals. It's good to have a house or a box where people meet. That's, that's not a church. word church in the Greek doesn't refer to the physical structure. It's the people, but it's good to gather. We're commanded to gather. We are commanded to come together on the Sabbath and hear the word of God in fellowship, sitting home, unless we don't have a choice, is not a biblical option for a Christian. But we're also to be sharing the gospel on a regular basis. And the reality is, if you know Jesus as Savior, and I know a lot of us here do, the odds are very high you came to Christ because someone you loved and trusted shared the gospel with you. Mom, a dad, brother, a sister, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, youth leader, somebody that you know and trusted For the most part, most of us came to Christ. I did, Becky did, and it's true for most people who come to saving faith. Someone we trust told us the evangel. I have a little granddaughter. Her middle name is Evangel, and it means good news. And that is what we are commanded to share. All right, our summons as we land the plane. Two things. Number one. And you're going to hear this same summons over and over again. In fact, for this one, I'm going to ask you to turn back to chapter 20 because I want to encourage us to keep that 
section burned into the frontal lobes of our brain. I will encourage you as we go through John to take a couple verses and memorize them. Something in John that grips you and memorize it. It may be a verse or a paragraph or a chapter. There's no reason some of us shouldn't be memorizing chapters. I'm right now, I'm just happy to be working on two verses myself. Two, one is in Greek, one is in English, but there are two that are meaningful to me and have something to do with my own walk and my own flaws. And so I'm trying to memorize two verses right now. I want to encourage it. And I say that because these two might be really good ones to memorize. These are John's summons. Not very often the writer of a book says, here's why I wrote, but here's why he wrote. Jesus performed many other signs, verse 30, chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And notice, and that by believing, what happens? You might have life in his name. So summons number one, make sure you're forgiven. Make sure you know Christ. It's too easy to sit in a church and just check the boxes and go home and check out. Make sure you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and owned it. And we've noted that the Greek verb, I believe, really an English equivalent is, I'm all in with this. Yeah, I believe it intellectually. You have to believe it intellectually. You can't get saved. But that can't end there. You, the Greek verb means I'm all in. I'm done with myself. I'm done with my sin. I want Christ as Savior. Jesus is Lord. I gladly surrender to him as my Savior. Have you done that? Most important decision ever in your life. And then secondly and lastly, the second summons. To those who would say, I am saved. I know Christ. There's a call here, and that call is this. Who have you shared the gospel with recently? We weren't just left on earth to cocoon, either in a church or in our home. We were left on earth to testify, to give a witness and share the evangel. And again, while our own salvation story can be helpful, and God may use that, the primary message to be communicated in evangelism is the evangel. The good news. So let me just be very clear. What, what is the gospel? Tell us, preacher. What is the gospel? Here it is. It's good news, not good advice. It is good news, an announcement, that forgiveness is available for any moral failure like us if we will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is a true story. That's what it is. That God invaded history in the person of Jesus to rescue lost sinners. The gospel is a proclamation that the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross satisfied the wrath and justice of God. And the gospel is an announcement that Jesus is the Savior, and then the gospel urges people to repent and believe and follow him. And that means we need to be sharing that with friends and family and our children. I will keep emphasizing that over and over again. We need to make sure we are explaining the evangel to our children and gospeling them and then discipling them. If all you do is bring them to church and go home and never talk about it, then you're disobeying a whole pile of commands, especially Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11, because we're supposed to be talking about this all the time. And part of that is discipling and leading our kids to saving faith so that they do repent 
and believe in the gospel, there should be an urgency in us about all of this. I'm going to close with a quote from, I think, the man who's preached the gospel to more people than anybody in history, Billy Graham. Some of you don't even know the name anymore. But if you look through history at the great evangelists, they all had this sense of urgency. Billy Graham, who died in 2018, preached the gospel to more people than anybody in the history of the world. God raised him up to that level, and he had a great quote here. I end with this. The evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and women and of nations is always being decided. Every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for the past generation, and we cannot bear full responsibility for the next one. But we do have our generation, and God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. That is the gospel. Father, thank you for the evangel. We live in a dark planet that's violent and dangerous. And do we ever need good news? Thank you for a reminder that the gospel leads to joy and that one of the hallmarks of a true follower of Christ is joy that just exudes out of them and others see. We pray this as we lift our voices to you. May we see more followers, more joy-filled followers who then go get baptized and begin to tell others. And we pray this in Jesus' name.